Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and a warm welcome back to the show that revitalizes your perspective on agriculture, livestock management, our food networks, and the dedicated individuals behind them. I'm Brian Alexander, delighted to be your guide on this journey. You're tuned into Ranching Reboot, and today we're embarking on episode 151. Let's dive in. This week on Ranching Reboot, we're thrilled to have Land Trust back as our sponsor. Land Trust is the go-to platform for sports enthusiasts searching for new hunting or outdoor adventure spots. For us ranchers, Land Trust offers a secure and straightforward way to connect with these adventurers. I understand how challenging it can be to trust strangers who show up wanting to discuss hunting on your land. That's where Land Trust steps in. They alleviate much of the uncertainty by conducting thorough background checks and ensuring every user's identity is verified. This adds a layer of security and peace of mind. Partnering with Land Trust means taking full control. You make all the decisions regarding bookings. And if you're ever uncomfortable with a potential guest, you have complete freedom to deny that request. What's more, listing your property with Land Trust is not only cost-free, but they take on the heavy lifting. Their team will visit your property, collaborate with you to customize your offerings, and even assist in crafting your listing and uploading, uploading the photos. Land Trust is an excellent resource for landowners and outdoor enthusiasts alike to forge new connections. Discover more by clicking on the link in our show notes or visit their website at www.landtrust.com. Don't miss this opportunity to explore what Land Trust can offer you. This episode also made possible thanks to the incredible support from my patrons on patreon.com slash Rancher. Additionally, patrons on Patreon and Spotify subscribers enjoy the perk of an ad-free podcast experience. On that note, I'd like to propose a challenge to y'all. Producing two versions of the podcast, managing uploads, is quite the task. So here's a deal for you. If we can just get 20 new subscribers or supporters on Patreon, I will disable all embedded ads for everyone for the remainder of the year. That's right, no more ads for 2024. This is your chance to not only support the show, but to enhance the listening experience for the entire Ranching Reboot community. Last week, I was in Wichita for no-till on the plains. I had a great time meeting a ton of new friends, and I learned a lot. This week, I'm going to be taking care of a few things here on the ranch, trying to catch up on the podcast. And if you're looking for another great educational opportunity, check out High Plains No-Till, February 6th and 7th in Burlington, Colorado. High Plains No-Till is always a lot of fun with a dynamite speaker lineup. You don't want to miss it. There's still time to get registered at www.highplainsnotill.com. I'm planning on being there, and I've got a ton of swag to give out, plenty of stickers and some sweet land trust hats. Come say hello and grab some swag. 
This week on the podcast, my guest is Tom Kravitz, a rancher and author from Athabasca, Alberta. Tom talks about working in the oil fields of northern Canada, how he grew up, and how he got into ranching. And he shares the inspiration behind the process in writing his book, How to Ranch Like a 12-Year-Old. Please welcome Tom Kravitz to Ranching Reboot. Tom Kravitz, established author. Thank you for joining me on Ranching Reboot. I'm glad we could finally make this work. How are you today, sir? I am doing well. Doing very well. Well, that's good to hear. So you've written a book, and we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, I want to hear about the why of why you wrote the book and how you got there. So I guess uh, start us off a little bit about you know kind of who you are and where you're from and what you do. Okay, I'm actually, uh, I'm a little embarrassed about just because I'm not nothing special. I just, uh, I have a little story and just like everybody, but um, I guess I should tell my history because that's what it seems like people want to hear about uh, each guest. So I actually grew up in uh, Oil Town and my parents had a oil field trucking company and um yeah, that's what I did. And, but my passion was not my passion. Um, I was really interested in agriculture. Uh-oh. What happened? I just lost your audio. You did? Can you hear me now? Can you still hear me? Give me a thumbs up. All right. Let me pause it for a second and figure see if I can figure out what's going on. Okay, cool. Well, that was, that was a little interesting audio thing. Never had that happen. All right. Uh, where were we? I was just, I was just, we just got started. I was talking about growing up in an oil town. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about that. Your folks had an oil field trucking company, I think. Is yep. Yeah. And, uh, but both my parents came from um, a farming background, mixed farming. And um, that's where my uh, relatives were. And I loved spending time out there. Uh, in fact, I would go and spend all summer out uh, on farms. Um, and then uh, um, from there, yeah, I wasn't interested in trucking at all. Um, and then, um, although I did quite a bit, but uh, then I went to university, uh, got into rodeo, I rode bulls for uh, a number of years. And then through actually through trucking, I got onto um, the drilling rigs. And I met a very influential person in my life, um, Dwayne Carroll, who was uh, my, my tool push. Uh, taught me a lot about being an entrepreneur, how to be organized, um, how to train people. Man, I was just very lucky to uh, to have him come into my life and uh, and mentor me along. And, and for those that don't know, the driller runs the crew on the rig, and he's got to be responsible for leading and training and and those things. Yeah, but. Uh, Dwayne was actually rig manager. Did I say driller? Uh, I meant he was the rig manager. Okay. Yeah. Uh, actually, I worked up to be uh, a driller. Uh, I went from water hauler to driller in, in just a few years. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then, you know what? I, um, I quit the rigs and the winter, 
forget what a winter was. I heard about uh, out of work. I heard a guy talking about this course called uh, holistic resource management. Okay. Now it's called holistic management. So that would have been um, uh, my wife and at, at the time uh, we took uh, the course in January of 2000 and we just jumped in. We took a direct marketing course uh, a few months later in, in uh, 2000, March and February. And we started grazing hogs, sheep, chickens, uh, and custom grazing cow-calf pairs in 2000. And then, um, then I got into, through holistic uh, management, uh, you know, of course, there's the ecology part. And I read uh, Andre Wilson's book, Grass Productivity. And for some reason, I got hooked on, on growing grass. And that's been a passion of mine ever since. And then um, I guess kind of the, the uh, inspiration for the book and actually inspiration for the way that I think about ranching. A um, friend of mine, uh, his daughter and her best friend uh, came and started spending summer, summers with us in, uh, I think it was 2002. It was Heather and Tiffany. And Heather was 12 and Tiffany was 13. And what I learned, realized early on that for them to be helpful, really genuinely helpful, I had to set things up so a 12-year-old could do it. And I just started asking myself the question with everything, can Heather and Tiffany do this? And then it just became, can a 12-year-old do this? Okay. And the- is that more from just like a physical capacity or is that more, is that also like a mental reasoning and problem-solving capacity? Both. Okay. But you, you start out with the physical part, but you have to have it set up so that it's easy. So that, you know, you don't have to think hard about it. It's just, oh, okay. Uh, well, here's a selector gate. I just open that gate, let the cattle in. I go and turn on this valve to water. I shut that valve off for water. So it has to be that, uh, that kind of simplicity. But most definitely the physical part. You know, simple thing like, yeah, I could have bought the cheaper um, uh, steel pipe wrench. But wouldn't it be easier for a 12-year-old, particular, uh, well, yeah, 12-year-old girl to use an aluminum pipe wrench? Yeah, it would be a little more expensive. But then, you know, that 12-year-old doesn't mind going and uh, doing this job, tightening, fitting or whatever, because the pipe wrench is, is light. But if you have a heavy pipe wrench, then, yeah, crap. You know, and the cool thing about when you have, uh, if a 12-year-old can do it, an 80-year-old can do it, the day-to-day yeah. stuff. Yeah, and I think that's, that's kind of important because not only do we need to maybe look at how our operations, well, we need to look at how our operations are set up and maybe not just make them a little bit easier for the people on the left side of the age curve, also for people on the right side of the age curve because there's a whole bunch of those too. Darn right. And I see a lot of guys, they're retiring because it's too freaking much work. Not because they want to. Um, I have a friend uh, um, who's, what, I think he's, oh, I think he's 80 this year. And he's running more cows than, well, he's running about 120, 150 cows. More cows than he did when he was in his 40s. Well, t- more than twice as many. And having more fun doing it. And what happened was 
after his wife died, we rented his place for, I think, three years. And I just set up the template at his place. And then he comes back and um, I thought he was actually done farming, but no, he came back and he said, I want to start farming again. And he just jumped into our template and it just was easy. And so now he goes in, um, I think this winter, he's spending time in, um, again, in Panama at his uh, daughter's condo. And he's bale grazing. He has his paddock set up and he's bale grazing. And he has his grandkids going to open up the gate uh, once a week and let the cows into a new, uh, a new paddock and new bales. So it's that kind of thing. And really, the basis of the book is just ask yourself, can a 12-year-old do this? And if they can't, you change it or you stop doing it. And the cool thing about that is that you have more time. You have more time for, um, for your family. And normally, it's a cost savings. Okay. So what are, maybe, maybe walk me through some of the, some of the things that, that you talk about in the book. Like, have you read my book yet? Uh, oh man, I knew you were going to ask. I haven't had time. I've skimmed it. Uh, oh my one. gosh, is that embarrassing, Brian? Holy, yeah. holy! I had had a busy <laughs> busy the last couple of weeks. I know I'm just teasing. <laughs> um. Okay, well, you know what? The, the how about let's talk about the uh, the template. So I have a I actually have a video uh, of my fancy template. Um, I have one for the gate handles that I built, and I have one for the actual uh, electric fencing that I do on my YouTube channel. And I know that the my fencing uh, is not the the least expensive. But it's pretty inexpensive when you factor in the labor. Because what I found was happening was, um, well, actually, after our HRM course, you know, uh, a big thing in HRM was cut your costs. So, yeah, we cut our costs. We were building two-acre paddocks uh, every two days out of poly wire and step and pole, or rebar posts, actually. Okay. Because at, at that time, rebar posts, Three-quarter-inch rebar posts were cheaper than step-in posts. And, I mean, sometimes they're basically free. So, uh, like, again, this is like 20 year, or 23 years, 24 years. And that's what we were doing. And I got to thinking, wow, oh, geez, because it was a lot of work. Uh, you know, we had to hand-pound them, and we had to drag that all around. And I said, oh, boy, it would be great if we um, had something to on wheels. Well, I went and found a couple of old um, uh, pull-type golf carts, and I just rigged it up so that I could put the rebar posts in there. And boy, it was a game changer. We didn't have to drag that bloody toboggan around anymore. And I was looking at the wrong thing. I was looking at the wrong thing because the amount of labor it was taking, we were exhausted. Yeah. And you can only do that for so long. And so that exhaustion, yes, it's physical, but it's also mental. So then you stop thinking, you don't have the, um, the capacity to, to really think things out. Like there, you know, I was all I was, I was uh, head down, ass up. And here I was just thinking of, well, how 
I could just get a, um, a golf cart and pull this around when I should have been thinking, maybe I should stop doing this. Maybe there's, maybe there's an easier way to skin this cat than trying to get a better knife. That's exactly right. So, at, so the, the, the template with the fencing, as an example, um, I go with two, t- uh, wires, uh, high tensile 12 gauge. I have large posts, uh, like my, my end posts and my corner posts are, uh, five to six inch, uh, eight feet. And my line posts are, um, four to five, seven footers. So much more expensive. But here's the reason that I did that is because. Now, is this going to be like an internal subdivision fence or would this be more of a perimeter containment fence? Both. Okay. Okay. And here's the reason. There's lots of uh, an Athabasca area. Uh, well, not just Athabasca area, other areas that I've branch managed. There's been, uh, there's elk and moose. Now, when you have a full-grown moose or a herd of elk hit your fence, something is going to break. Yes. Come spring, it's easy to just go with a cordless drill. And I use a cordless drill and screws for the uh, insulators, you know, the claw-type insulators. Yeah, you just you just screw them right to the wood. Yeah, you bet. Now, that's pretty darn easy. In fact, the 12-year-old, I've sent... 12 year olds. Uh, actually, I think the youngest kids I've sent is 10 years old around uh, on a quad and go and put insulators in in the spring. But if you have a busted post, well, now you're, it's a different situation. So uh, if you don't have a post pounder, you have to go rent a post pounder. Uh, at that time of year, uh, in our area, anyways, very good chance it's muddy. So there's a chance of getting stuck. And so often what was happening was that, you know, I couldn't get in there to pound a post. And so then I was just jimmy rigging it so that I had a a fence. And then next thing I know, I have a fence jimmy rigged all over the place. And so once I started going with the bigger posts, I didn't have that issue anymore. Yes, I still had issues of going and doing the insulators, but that's not a big deal. That's just going around and checking your insulators is just basic maintenance. Like it's, you bet. I mean, it, I'll go out and ride everything before the season starts, you know, get things picked up, get things ready to go. But then again, you know, they want to go set an energizer somewhere. I go check all that fence before I turn it on because I want to make sure that it's going to be good and not kill my battery the first day. Sure. And yeah, go on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, so anyways, that's just an example. That's something that I went to and I said, okay. Oh, and, and the reason that I go two wires, um, is because, uh, I was custom grazing. And so we had, uh, particularly when I started taking yearlings in, uh, I had, we kept cow, cow pairs over, um, like all year round for, for two or three, um, uh, owners. So that was not a big deal. We could, it was easy to go with just one wire, but once we started bringing yearlings in, um, 
routinely, there would be one or two that would be in another paddock. And so then uh, it became a labor issue because what happened was that I only had um, one or two summer students. And so they'd be coming out of, usually out of university. So they don't know how to, uh, you know, their stockmanship wasn't uh, the greatest. So it would take them, you know, a minimum of half hour. Well, even me, um, a minimum of half hour to go and get those uh, yearlings and get them back in, in with the herd. But, and with the summer students, uh, a lot of times what would happen that I would have to go. So that just adds on, you know, on to labor in my day. And you start adding that up over the course of, uh, you know, five months. It's an expense that doesn't need to be there. So what I, because what I found was that yearlings, you'd have some jumpers and you'd have some ones that um, uh, like to pop underneath. So once I put the wires, well, I had two wires uh, for internal fence. I didn't have that issue anymore. Okay. Are, are both wires hot or are you having a conductor in the ground? No, both wires are hot. Okay. Yeah. I, I forget exactly what the... Um, uh, like just off the top of my head, what the the distance or the measurements are from the ground. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's in the book, and uh, and I actually talk about it on my YouTube video as well. Uh, exactly what what those distances are, and you know that that's just trial and error uh, that I came up with that. So there's an example, you know, just cutting down labor. Like you know, I listened to your your podcast and. So many people talk about how busy they are. So yeah. I'll give you, oh, sorry, go ahead, Brian. No, I mean, it, and it's only going to be more of a problem as we move into the future. Labor is going to be more expensive. It's going to be harder to get a hold of. And your time gets more, gets more valuable. And, you know, we got to find these labor saving hacks that save us time and save us money. Both not not just now, but for years down the line, because there's no sense in saving ten cents today to spend fifty cents next year. I agree. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, and just to give you uh, a little perspective on this, um, so you know, I, I said that, uh, or I think I said that we direct the market and meet for seven years. Okay. And then you, uh, you said that sorry? past tense. Yes, from when we started, we started selling direct market. We start direct marketing in two thousand, and then for seven years, uh, that's what we were doing, and we're I was bringing in uh, custom grazing along at uh, at that time, and I just found that for us to, we weren't making enough money. Yes, our our gross margin per unit uh, was fantastic. But our turnover, uh, we had to get our turnover up. And I realized that for us to increase our turnover to where to pay our mortgage and uh, raise our kids, it was going to take a lot uh, to get to that point. And I just saw custom grazing as a much easier way. And so, yeah, so we wound down the, the direct marketing business and went into custom grazing. And at our heyday, we were running uh, 3,000 yearlings 
uh, in the summer and I had one or two summer students. And I'm not exaggerating, Brian, when I say this, we had six hours of work per day between two of us. That was it. I mean, I'm, so I, I can believe it. I can believe it. I've done 1,200 on this ranch by myself in five different herds and only put in average six or eight hour day. Okay, there you go. Hey, well, you know what? Another hack uh, is stop the multiple herds. Get them into a mob. I know. I'm not telling you. I'm not. I'm not. Te- no, I'm not telling you to do that. What I'm saying is that that's what I did. That's what yeah. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I get that. And the reason I had five herds that year is I had one herd in a like a 250 acre paddock, strip grazing. I had another group that was basically in. Um, it was in about 700 acres, and it was a pretty good sized group. They were strip grazing. Um, so we had two groups that were moving every day behind polywire. And then I had another, then I had then two other groups were moving on average every two to five days. And then another group was moving about once a week. So, yeah, again, again, Brian, I am not judging you whatsoever. Uh, I'm just telling you that for me, um, I realized because labor became so, uh, so important to me that. I realized I had to get my uh, labor down and I just started getting the bigger herds. You know, like I didn't have anything under 400. Like if I could not put a cell together uh, that I could run 400, I did not take that land because it was all on rented land. It was, uh, we ran 3,000 yearlings on about 5,500 acres and it was pretty much all rented land. Yeah. And so, you know, I get that. And I'd love to be in a place where I had one herd. This just yeah. because I've got I've got highways running through the ranch that kind of break it up neatly into thirds. I I've tried for the last 15 years to figure out, you know, the how to balance the labor component with the cattle component and getting sure getting across the highway so many times a year. And I just can't I just can't make it really work out for me, I don't think. Being able to run it as being able to run it as three units gives me a lot of different flexibility. Um, but then again, I could probably do a lot better if I could just get past past some of my own mental roadblocks and actually run the whole place as as one ranch instead of three units that are just kind of across the road from each other. But someday I might get there. I mean, two to three hundred trucks a day going down these roads. And you know, it there's there's been times where I've just one or two of us have, have come across the road. And then there's times where I've got 10 guys because you never know. Uh, my dad's got a horror story that he, he goes back to from the late eighties where they were bringing, I think it was like 2000. They were trying to bring 2000 right across the highway. And it was literally like a straight shot across the highway and the right away from the pasture they were in into the corrals. And dad said that they, Everything was going good. They had about 90% of them across and just the last few were coming out of the pasture. And one of the trucks that was sitting right there waiting to go, the air brake dryer relief did its thing. And, uh, those yearlings freaked out and it took dad and the hired man over two weeks to get them all captured and caught. There were, there was stuff 10 miles away down the road 
So I get uh I get pretty leery when I, when people say, Oh, we'll we'll just go across the highway. I'm like, okay, well, let's make sure we've got six dudes and we'll call the sheriff to make sure they got traffic shut down and we'll <laughs> call the call the trucking company truck pusher and make sure that he knows that's going on. So he tells all his guys and they don't run us over. So not saying it can't be done. It's just a lot less stressful not to worry about that. Again, Brian, I'm not judging and I hear this sort of thing all the time. Uh, so, you know, when you ask if there's anything off, um, off limits of talking about, and I put those three things. Yeah. Now I'm going to start putting this on talking about <laughs> mobbing up herds because <laughs> I, it's the same conversation and it just, it goes on and on and everybody is different. And so that's all I'm saying. And, uh, I was just talking about for myself. Uh, you asked me what my hacks were. Yep. And so that was one of them. So I didn't have anything under 400 yearlings. Uh, like I said, if I, if I could not put a, a cell together uh, for at least 400 uh, yearlings, I did not do it. And that being said, you know what? I have not gone crazy. Like the, the largest that I've done is 950 okay. uh, yearlings together. And lots 850 uh many times i've done i've had groups of 850 um and then you know what i find that's pretty easy for one person to to handle um yeah so anyways that's you asked for a couple of hacks that's a couple of the hacks there that that i have i talk about it extensively in the book um yeah so anyways where are we now um, couple couple of notes that I have is uh, you you talk about selective versus non-selective grazing, and topic of conversation around here of late is name brand grazing, and by that I mean it seems like, and I'm not not picking on you in particular at all. Like this is just a general observation about you know, the, the grazing side of the whole industry is. That's good. Cause I hate when people pick on me. <laughs> the, there's so many terms, right. And, you know, oh, man, yeah. managed intensive, ultra high density. And, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. And I get a little bit worn out from hearing quote brand names of grazing. Cause it just seems like, it seems like there's a lot of folks that are telling everybody to do the same thing just under slightly different names so they can sell their program with their name. And to me, it really comes down to that there's, it's hard to have a one size fits all program for grazing because the land is so different and everybody's management context is so different with, you know, the management ownership dynamic and, you know, and long-term goals for the property. So, I just, I like to shy away from, from, you know, brand names. So tell me about how you like to graze. Okay. Well, you know what? There, uh, when I took holistic management in uh, January, 2000, uh, there was a couple of things that I learned and one of them was well, the, the graze period and the recovery period. And so that's what I adhere to and still to this day. And I'm 
I would say on the verge of fanatical, you do not violate those two principles. And you can have all the excuses you want about, well, I had to do this or I had to do this. I don't care it, it, for myself. And I cannot violate those principles. And I will do anything. It doesn't matter how much flooding there is. And I have to go, you know, two miles around um, a flooded area to get to the pasture that I need to. I'm going to do that because I'm not going to violate those two principles. And that's what I was taught in host management uh, 20 some years ago. And so, you know, the, the growth curve, the grass growth curve, and you have stage one, stage two, and stage three. Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. So, you know, I learned, okay, you, you want to stay in, in stage two. And so that's what I did. And after reading um, Andre Bosin's book, um, I was in stage two, but I, I always stayed in stage two, keep the, uh, to keep the plants vegetated. But I was in early stage two. And after, and the other thing that I did uh, at that time was I scraped the pasture, like Andre Bosin talked about in his book. What, what do you mean by scraping the pasture? Well, it's kind of like the non-selective, what the non-selective grazers are doing right now. Okay. Okay. From what, what I understand of what they're doing. Uh, but that's what I was doing. Trying, trying uh, to total, like, or the total graze, trying to use, yeah. trying to graze everything in there all the way down. Yeah, you bet. Okay. Okay. So that's what I was doing. But you know what? It was... I would say by year three, I started to realize, okay, that's, that's not working. I'm not getting the ground cover uh, that we need. Um, and I'm not getting the performance on the animals that I would like. And so it's interesting you say that because you've been down this path before with the, you know, the, the non-selective or the total grazing. And it's been my feeling for a while that it'll work for a couple of years, but then it's going to start to go downhill. Well, I don't know about going downhill. I, I will not go there, but definitely plateaus. Okay. In my experience. And I'm just going to go, well, it's, it's kind of with this topic. Something that I am getting is I'm getting emails from people who have been grazing uh, six to eight years and they have found the same thing. So they have gone and they have followed these methods uh, um, and they've had fantastic results but then they plateau and the place that they plateau is not where they want to be. And so that's what I found. But anyways, so it was, just, yeah, so year three, so I stopped doing that um, and then by year five, I start to realize that I wasn't really improving the soil. I was very, like, I was getting probably, I would say, four, four times the utilization uh, of people around me. Okay. But when I really looked at the soil, I was not really improving it. You know, I, I just... I stalled out. And then I realized I was just organized. 
I got organized with my grazing and that's all I did. And then it just started bugging me more and more. And at that time I was, uh, I was, uh, doing some writing, uh, for different publications and uh, I was getting interviewed because we were doing something new and, but I was feeling like a hypocrite. Uh, because I knew I didn't really know what I was doing. Yes, I was, I was great at the organization, but I was not doing what, uh, uh, I was not doing what I was saying I was doing. I was not improving the soil. And this, you know, this is what I was taught through, um, holistic management, um, you know, that you're going to get all these results. And I realized I wasn't getting these results. So then what happened was, uh, I stopped, I stopped writing. I stopped reading because I knew that these other people that I was reading about, they didn't know either, but they were still talking the same story. So I just went and stayed on the ranch and I figured it out. And a lot of it was by luck. Um, you know, like when I, I moved the, my grazing from, well, I call it the sweet spot. So that is just the point just before, uh, plants go into reproduction into the okay. reproductive phase. So late phase two, late phase two. And once I did that, Brian, things changed completely. The animals, uh, like the performance, I'm not going to say went through the roof, but greatly improved. And I was getting this, uh, the grass started to really improve again. You know, I had plateaued and now it was really going. And then, um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was just better all around. It was getting more ground cover. The animals were doing better. The grass was doing better. Um, and I actually don't know where the end is on what we can accomplish uh, when you start grazing and or when I start grazing in, at that level. Uh, there's a point I call the, um, uh, the tipping point. And are you familiar with, um, stock days per acre, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. There's a point that, uh, again, this is by luck. Once you hit, it's about 175 stock days per acre. Once you hit that point, the grass production takes off. And if what it seems like to me, there is enough biomass there that there's enough biomass above the ground and there's enough biomass below the ground. And that starts driving the system without doing any inputs except your management. And so once, in my experience, once I hit that point, that tipping point, in two to three years, I'm at 325 stock days per acre. Wow. Yeah, wow. Now, once you start doing the math on that, things on your edge change a lot. But the trick is, if you do not get to that 175, you stall out. You stall out, out at a level. And somehow, I remember uh, reading in Stockman Grass Farmer, 
I, I want to say 2005, I read this article, uh, Al Nation had written about a, a dairy farmer, an organic dairy farmer in, um, in uh, uh, Ireland. Okay. And what that fellow talked about was the first thing that he does when he takes over a new dairy, he gets the grass growing. And he says, whatever it takes, whatever input, whatever, whatever you need to do, you need to get grass. So once you have the grass, now you can start worrying about organics. You can start worrying about genetics. I'm nodding along in agreement because, you know, it all starts with the soil. It all circles back it, to the soil. Right. And so how do we get that? Um, so I'm going to come back to, like I said, the graze period and the recovery period. And I want to stay. I actually think the, the key that we're missing is grazing in the sweet spot. And that is where there's enough recovery for the plants. Um, but it's the plants stay vegetative. So the cool thing about this, uh, I find anyways, so I've been doing this, um, based on my observations, uh, you know, for 20 plus years. And then now I think in the last probably four or five years, I've been reading a lot of research and I'm finding there's research to back up what I'm doing. And I'll give you an example. This, um, uh, there's a thing called compensatory photosynthesis. Okay. Have you heard that term? I know what compensatory gain is, or I think I know what compensatory gain is. So compensatory hey. photosynthesis is probably fairly Very similar. Sim you bet. So what it means is when a plant gets bitten, there's these physiological processes that go on with, within the, in the plant that go into hyperdrive and okay. allow the plant to, well, uh, increase photosynthesis more than on a normal level. Now, I always called this waking up the grass. And it was just, I was reading uh, one article what, or one uh, research paper and then here this they were talking about for, uh, this compensatory for synthesis. So then I looked into it and I thought, well, that's cool. That's exactly what I have observed. And as long as you don't take that plant all the way down, it, it's just surprising how fast it, it will start growing. And it's because of that little bite and it, it stimulates the plant and, um, you know, you have enzymes. Uh, I don't know what else the heck goes on in the plant. I'm not a microbiologist, but. There's a lot of shit that goes on that goes into hyperdrive. And Cow spit grows grass. Sure. And so I've actually heard you talk about it, and I was wondering how much of it is um, compensatory photosynthesis and how much is it the actual uh, uh, enzymes and that sort of thing in the saliva. But that's another topic. But um, what I was trying, I'm still trying to get to this point of this respecting the graze period and the recovery period. And so once I move to the, to later stage two, uh, my recovery period 
uh, increased. But the way that I discovered that what the recovery period is, was by luck. What are you calling recovery? Are you now a couple of questions, I guess. <laughs> so like I'm, I'm with you on, on the sweet spot grazing, you know, the grazing in later phase two is better for antelope performance is better for the plant. The problem that I get into is my ranch is so big, got a lot of different kinds of grass and it's the climate is so variable. So how do you, how do you, maybe I should back up. It's very challenging for me on native range to try to stay in the sweet spot of one species. What I can do is I can hope that I'm in the sweet spot of a grass species and shoot for that. So the questions that I would have right now are what kind of grass are you generally grazing on? Is it native range or is it like a planted type grass or, or something else? And how do you, with a broad mix of species and a landscape to cover, how are you making sure you're staying in that late phase two grazing all the time? Okay. It's very easy to complicate things. Yes. Uh, okay. Okay. So I'm going to get, a, so it's very easy to complicate things. I don't care what species are there. I don't okay. care what soil is there. This is, this is all this is, is a simple, simple math. Using a grazing chart and simple math. So. The way I discovered this was um, a neighbor of mine, uh, he ran a lot of cattle and he saw what I was doing because we lived right on the highway, which is not a lot of fun when you're doing something new. I, I so, understand. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, it did land me this job to set up his place with electric fence and set up this grazing. So, um, again, I told you that, uh, you know, I come from the background of holistic management. So I remember I had this, uh, herd, I think there was, yeah, there was about 350 cow calf pairs in there and I was strip grazing. And so I had this paddock, um, it was, I figured about five, where there was enough forage for about five days in that paddock. And what happened was the. I was going to strip graze it because, again, I came from holistic management. So that's what, uh, you know, we are suggested that we do. And then the cattle had to come and they had to come down an alley and go to a uh, solar water. So I gave them the first strip, first day. And then day two, I gave them another strip. And then they had to walk back to water. So they had to go through paddock one or not, not paddock, strip one right. to water. Then they go back. And then day three, I gave them another strip. And then they had to walk to strip one and strip two, go back to the water. Uh, day four, uh, I gave them another strip. They all go into the fourth strip. And then, uh, you know how cattle, you know, they'll, they'll graze for what, about 45 minutes to an hour or so, hour and a half. And then they'll want to go for water. So they go for water. They stopped in the first strip. 
and I was wondering, what the hell? And then I, realized, they, then I realized there was enough regrowth by day three or by day four that they could take another bite. And then what happened day, day five, I think when I called them, I think there was like four cows that actually came all the way up to the, the, the fifth strip, but they were in, in the first and second strip. And that's when I realized, okay, in this area at that time, it was in the first rotation. I cannot go more than three days. Three days is the max for the grace period. And so then I was able through the next couple of years to realize for that latitude of Athabasca. Um, and I really make this point because people email me and say, well, I don't think 35 days of recovery is good here. And I said, yeah, I, I was just using that as an example. And just like the, the three-day um, graze period, that's ranch-specific. So latitude, uh, conditions, moisture, and all that sort of thing, very specific. So at that latitude of Athabasca, it was about uh, 35 days of recovery, plus or minus five days. And consistently, you know, right from when I first started, that was the recovery in that first uh, uh, the first rotation. Here, it's usually five days. I can get away with five days of grace period. Yep, I can get away with five days before I'll have all that before I'll start getting regrowth. Um, on a strip grazed, I, on a strip grazed type situation, whereas maybe taking a little bit more. And granted, you know, comparing apples to potatoes because different years, um, it seemed to take maybe another day when I was strip grazing at high densities and taking, and taking it down a little bit farther. Right. I, you know what? Uh, I, I, we better not get into that because I just wrote a, an article uh, detailing uh, what you're talking about. Uh, and I put a lot of research into that, into that, uh, that article um, dating back from 1952. Uh, it started and how plants stop growing for a period of time once you get somewhere between 40 and 50%, uh, when you take 40 or 50%, the plants stop growing and they start sloughing off uh, roots. But if you stay, you know, below that 40%, the roots keep growing and the plant keeps growing. But that's oh, like that article. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. And, I, oh. and when I say take it all the way down, you know, there's still a plant crown with six or seven inches of dry yeah. matter and, and, and short leaf on it. I'm not talking about making it look like a pool table. There's guys yeah. that do that. I'm not one of them. No, and, and I knew what you were talking about. Uh, it's just that I just wrote that article for Stockton Grass Farmer. I sent it in. I don't know if they'll ever publish it, but uh, I sent it in here in November uh, detailing all that research uh, that, I've, that points in the direction of what I'm doing. Kind of support. Because there isn't actually research that I've been able to find and uh, really looking at grazing in the sweet spot. And I've lamented to uh, uh, Chris Nichols. Do you know Dr. Chris Nichols? Have you heard of her? Yeah, we've met. Oh, okay, cool. So I, I was lamenting to her about that one time that I can't find the research. And she said, Tom, there is no research. Um, 
So anyways, that's an aside. But getting to this recovery period. So you know what? Because I, I know where you are. And I was thinking that you're going to be about that four and a half to five days of graze period just for the latitude. I haven't grazed that as far south as you are, but I was kind of guessing that. And so something that happened, I want to say five or six years ago, um, it was when I was uh, a ranch managing, I had a cell that had 13 paddocks in. Okay. Okay. So I do my graze plan and we're going around, we just about finished the first rotation and I go to uh, do my second plan for the second rotation. And I just, I noticed that, Hey, this works perfectly. You know, corresponding with the, with the uh, graze period. And then I thought, Hmm. And I just did a little more investigation. And then I, I tried it a few more times, um, or, you know, over the course of this many years. And I realized when you have 13 paddocks and you know your grace period, so you let the animals tell you, tell you what your grace period is. When you plug that into the formula of holistic management on how to figure out your recovery period, it works perfectly. And basically what you're using is you're letting your animals tell you. Uh, so they, it, in holistic management, you normally start with the recovery period and then you work back onto your, your, how many paddocks you have and, and your grace period. Um, I use that formula still to this day, but I use the graze period and I let the animals tell me what the graze period is. And then from there, I'm able to figure using 13 paddocks, I'm able to use or figure out the recovery period. Okay. Because often we're taking the recovery period, you know, we're just pulling out of our ass what the recovery period is. You know, somebody says, oh, well, 60 days. Well, there's a lot of times that 60 days is way too long. And, and there's a lot point, of, and there's times where 60 days is about 200, not enough. All depends on rainfall, right? Sure. And temperature. You know? Yep. Uh, latitude, how many, how many, how much sunlight you, you get in a day, like in, in Northern Alberta, uh, excuse me. Um, what happened was I was, uh, I was ranch managing and it was kind of at the, I forget exactly the latitude, but it was at the latitude of, of Calgary, Alberta. And I was used to, to grazing. I think it's about 54 degrees latitude i'm not sure at at the task anyways so really far but north. yeah i can't remember exactly well really far north is relative man <laughs> fair point <laughs> I mean, when you get 20 hours of daylight in july you're far enough north yeah exactly and that's what i'm talking about and so anyways you know i was used to you know about 35 days of recovery and so I'm riding around on this ranch, uh, uh, you know, just kind of assessing the grass. And I just like, I, there was, I was noticing on the alfalfa, the alfalfa, you know, cause I was worried about bloat. Uh, and I, I like to have at least, I like to have about 
boom on the alfalfa uh, before I go in. And boy, it was taking, it was taking a lot longer or relatively a lot longer than and normal. And I was just like, what's going on here? And then I started thinking, hmm, I'm quite a bit further south. And so then I went and looked exactly where we were. Okay, we're down at Calgary. So then in that situation, the recovery time went from 35 days to 42 days. And it, all it had to do with the amount of daylight uh, in 24 hours. Because, you know, that further north and I forget how many, well, in your case, how many miles further north. You know, it it made a seven day difference. I can believe that. Yeah, because you know we didn't have as much further south. We didn't have as much daylight packed into twenty four hours. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, hey, how about we take a uh, take a quick break? I got to pee really bad. Be back in just okay. a minute. Sounds good. Yeah, we're back. So. Just for that little break, we were talking about uh, recovery, grass recovery, and the difference in latitude. And I was thinking there's just in the last five years, there's been such a tremendous variation in my recovery period because of the climate and the rainfall and temperature that we've had. And I was thinking, you know, my rule of thumb is I'm going to like my recovery period, I want to be between. 45 and 60 days generally. And sometimes that's a little closer to 90 and sometimes that's a little closer to 30, but you know, 45 to 60 is kind of where I'm at generally for planning purposes as the window. And there's some years where we can get plenty of rain, but not enough sun. And we have to lengthen that rest period out. And there's years where, you know, where it doesn't rain until June, like we've had, you know, we had, then it rain. The, all it does in June is rain. We get into July and things have to be adjusted again. So from my point of view, that recovery period is something I've got to kind of pay attention to every year and, and adjust, you know, you know, you adjust your graze period to kind of get your recovery period where it should be and making those balances, you know, can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. What do you, how much does, how much do you see that weather and climate affects your recovery period year to year? Completely, Brian. Okay. Like, it's just, you know, I, I use this example and, and, um, so there was a friend of mine, uh, he was, his ranch was like an oasis and but he just was doing it by the seat of his pants. But over the course of 20 some years, honestly, his ranch was freaking amazing. Uh, he was ranch manager there. He had, I had never seen so much thatch. Uh, like I would say he had three inches of thatch. Okay. Um, I remember going there uh, one day it was, well, it's 30 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is Fahrenheit. I think that's like uh, 85, 90 degrees. That's a warm day. Yeah. And just going and uh, moving the, the, the thatch out of the way and, and digging my little plug and the ground is cool. Uh, like amazing. 
but he had a hard time with the recovery period. And, you know, I was talking about this 35 days. I had a hard time for him to understand that that was at Athabasca. Not at his latitude, because he's uh, significantly further south. So his, you know, recovery period would have been, I'm, I'm guessing, because I don't know. I'd have to be there, you know, and, and do my tests with the animals. Uh, you know, I think he is probably about close to 42. So when I use examples, you know, like I said, 35 days, that was just one period in time. Um, I have a video on my YouTube channel. Um, it was actually what I'm doing is I'm calling 300 uh, finishing heifers out of, uh, out of the bush. And I use a whistle to do that. Uh, again, that's, a, you know, ranching like a 12-year-old principal because that video um, from the time I cr crawl over the fence till the time I'm, all the animals are into the new paddock is five minutes and 30, 30 seconds. Okay. That's 300 by myself. You said that with a whistle and I just, I had to flat, a flashback to thinking about, um, there's a guy here in Kansas, Derek Klingenberger. Several years ago, he posted a video that went like really viral. He's sitting out in a folding chair playing, I think, Lords on a, on his trombone. And then oh, yeah. all the cattle come running over the hill. Like, okay. If you don't know what you're looking at and don't understand cattle, that can look pretty cool, but yeah, they're, they're a simple animal and they respond well to positive reward, to positive reinforcement training. And if every time you go out there and you make a consistent noise, they come to you and then you lead them to fresh grass, they're going to understand that noise means good food. Exactly. And I, so I started out using bells, but bells are hard to carry. Uh, and so then I went to whistles and I actually use, uh, right now I use a couple of, uh, different whistles, uh, one whistle for each different herd, because if you have, uh, like I was at one ranch where they had, uh, there's a couple roads that went through the ranch. So sometimes I'd have yearlings on one side of the road and one time I'd have at, at, at the same time have cow calf pairs on the other side. So I had uh, the one whistle I had for the yearlings. It was uh, a hunting whistle for uh, for coyotes. It was uh, like an injured rabbit. I think that's what the whistle is okay. for the yearlings. And for the cow-calf pairs, I had just a, a, a hockey whistle, like a referee's whistle. So that I didn't want them, when I'm blowing the whistle, I didn't want them all coming to the fence. You know, both both of them. I just wanted the ones that I wanted. And the other thing about the whistle is that, and rather than a voice, uh, you know, banging on a pail or, or a truck or something, I can send anyone out there. And like uh, in that video on, on my YouTube channel, there's, uh, it was my nephew. I forget how old he was at the time. Uh, well, he's taken the video. Well, I could have sent him out there with the whistle to call those heifers and move them into the other paddock, you know, so anybody can do it. Um, so what I was actually going to get to, that's what the video is about. Okay. However, 
there was a guy, I was at the Ranchi for Profit School, uh, which I've taken, I think I've taken it three times. Uh, oh, wow. I'm actually, I'm in Executive Link as well. Very cool. Uh, I got, got back into that. So yeah, so it was, I was at uh, Ranchi for Profit School and there was a guy from uh, Florida. And he was asking, well, how do you do that? How do you train them? And so I was explaining to him. And then I thought, oh, I have a video on my YouTube channel. So I was showing him that video. And as it turned out, he, he didn't give a shit about what the video was about. He couldn't believe how much grass there was. And I did not know that I did not pay attention. That was August of uh, 2021. Athabasca County was declared a agricultural disaster because of the drought and the extreme heat. Okay. And the guy who I was man managing uh, that grass for, well, he fed or he grazed up until uh, November 30th that year when uh, pretty much everybody was out of grass. Well, they should have been off the grass by June or September 1st. But I'm not trying to, uh, my point is I'm not trying to say how wonderful I am because I'm not. I just used the grace period and the recovery period. And you were talking about how recovery period changes. So what happened in 2021 started out, our recovery period was 35 days. So we just, I had, you know, I made up my plan on my grazing chart that way and things are going great. Then. It stopped raining beginning of June. And then mid-June, we had unprecedented temperatures. So we had drought conditions and we had unprecedented temperatures. Well, I thought the grass went into dormancy. But then I did that test with the, the herd of um, uh, breeding heifers. And what I discovered that no, the grass was still growing, but it was now five days. Our grace period was five days because it was day six that they could, that they stopped in the, in the first strip. So now that, you know, then I was just able to adjust and I just changed my, my, um, uh, on my grazing chart, I do it in pencil and I just erased and I changed my grazing plan. Well, then the last week of July, we got a half an inch, three quarters of an inch of rain. And the temperature dropped. Now it changed again. And we, compensatory uh, growth, we got compensatory growth in the grass. I had never seen, you know, I've been grazing since uh, 2000. I have never seen grass grow that uh, fast and that much volume in um, August and September. And so that's where... We had one very, we had something very similar happen this year. Mm. Last couple of years were really, really super dry. Yeah. Okay. And where I'm at normally April the 8th is when things start greening up. Almost everybody in this part of the world turns out cattle to grass first of May. Okay. So that's just to kind of give you an idea. I knew it was dry. We get, we're getting, we're coming through April and I'm talking to my clients. Like, um, if we can hold off bringing in cattle, let's try to do that. Cause there's just not a whole lot to eat, you know? And I overwintered some last year and, and you know, through the process of overwintering, my forage budget said, 
around July 15th is when you're going to run out of grass. July 15th, July 30th, if nothing else grows. Normally, that's not a problem because things start growing in April. Well, April the 8th came and went. April the 20th came and went, and there was nothing growing. May 7th came and went, nothing growing. May 15th, haven't had a drop of rain in nine months. So just, I mean, no precipitation to speak of. We get down to the 20th of May. And brother, I'm going to tell you, it was, it, it was gruesome down here. Like, mm-hmm. it was getting warm and it was dry. It looked like, it looked like I would have expected to look in October in the middle of May. So I went ahead and made, yeah, went ahead and made the stocking decision. Like you can bring me this many, they might go home in 45 days. Like I'm going to guarantee you July 15th and that's it. So I made those, made the deal. Trucks start rolling in and it kind of started raining that day and it kind of rained for a whole month. And by the time it got back, it kind of quit raining and the sun came out. You know, it was down in a July, middle of July. I was out doing grass surveys and the, yeah, by the end of July, there was so much grass. I probably could have had three to four times the amount of cattle on the ranch this year that I did. And what you're talking about with compensatory grass growth. So all the grass growth that we didn't get in April and May mm. showed up by the end of July. I had, uh, my little blue stem, my side oats, you know, like my short C4 grasses, those were waist high. My switchgrass, my big blue, my Indian grass was six to seven feet. It's just, I've never seen grass come in that fast and that thick. So mother nature, I mean, when you think you got it figured out, mother nature will throw you a curveball. Now saying that, okay. I was in pretty good shape with that, you know, and I could take advantage of that compensatory grass growth because those pastures were resting and they hadn't been under continuous animal impact like a set stock operation. If you can believe it, I still have several neighbors that do set stock. Like if you could believe that. And even now, I mean, well, three months ago at the end of the growing season, those pastures really didn't look that great. There wasn't a whole lot of recovery because they were continuously set stocked and they were grazed and nothing in there ever had a chance to recover. Dad always says, a drought will show you the good managers from the bad. Not how you go in, not living through it, but how you come out of it. Sure. So the, I'd just like to comment on that. There's, um, so when you have that situation that you're talking about, there's two things that I find that have been my experience. If I let the grass go uh, into stage three, the grass has done its job for the year. So then we get uh, 50% or less possible recovery or possible um, production on the, on the, on the reed. But if we keep the plants in, um, in that sweet spot. So we have it clipped before it goes into recovery period. We might have to, you know, we might have to, our recovery period might increase, but that grass is still at that stage. It has not gone into reproductive phase. 
So then what I have seen is once we do get a shot of rain, then we get that compensatory gain or that compensatory growth. I, I'm so, curious why, I mean, other than reasons animal performance, why you'd be against ever letting your grasses complete phase three and reseed. I didn't say that I'm never. Okay. Uh, how, however, the article that I, my understanding, and like, again, I'm not a soil biologist. Uh, so most of what I do is based on my observation, but keen observation. You know, I write stuff down. I've kept, uh, I started keeping my first, um, uh, my first grazing chart uh, in 2000. And I still, keep my grazing chart. I write down my, um, what happened during the year, uh, how much production I have. So, um, the research points in the direction that grazing in that sweet spot, we are doing more for the soil biology. Uh, Dr. Nichols talks about, uh, in many of her presentations about, we need to be feeding the soil biology more than once a year. So what happens? When uh, plants are vegetative, they are really releasing exudates into the soil. Right. And that's what, that's what drives or feeds the bugs. Okay. And I always think about it as, um, or I have always thought about this. I want to be feeding the biology below the ground the same quality as a feed that I'm feeding the biology above the ground. Okay. And so uh, there were several studies from 2001 uh, that I found where they looked at this very thing. And what they found was that uh, plants start releasing exudates, you know, in, in the shoot stage, you know, when the plants are small. Right. And it increases. The amount of exudates that they release increases. And it corresponds with the, the grass growth curve. And then once the plant reaches reproductive phase, it stops releasing exudates and those exudates go into production of the seed head. So then what happens is that the biology goes back dormant. Again, I'm not a soil biologist. So I'm gleaning this from research that I read and from, uh, you know, my conversations with uh, Dr. Nichols. Um, you know, and another, just to, to point this out, is that, uh, you know, I've heard Nicole Masters talk in her presentations that um, she sees that the biology in North America on the plains is dormant. It's, it's you know, it's sleeping. And how do we, how do we uh, wake that biology up? And in my experience, it is keep grazing in the sweet spot the whole season. So then these biology, these bugs are getting fed uh, more than once a year. I don't know why, but I just question on my mind right now. Do you have any experience with prescribed or controlled burning of pastures or is no. burning not a thing north of the north of the border oh my gosh brian um 
or if, if you if you even suggested it, would you get run out of town on a rail? No, uh, this is deeper than I've heard you talk about prescribed burn on your podcast. This is deeper. It's a, it's um, so I've read old journals from 1700s uh, up until I think the uh, about 1850s, and so where I'm from. And not just from where I'm from, but uh, further uh, afield. The Great Plains were much more extensive than they are now. And the, the Plains people burnt. Every spring, they burnt. And But maybe not the same thing every year. Maybe not. But the reason that they burnt was to bring, get the grass going, to bring the bison in. They didn't go all over looking for bison, which is, you know, I grew up thinking that that's, they were following the bison. And once the bison were, you know, in their, um, you know, in their de decline, yes, they had to go looking for bison, but they didn't have to do that. You know, in the, in the mid 1700s, they didn't have to do that. Um, so anyways, Brian, you know what, this is a huge subject uh, and I haven't written the, the paper yet about it, but. I'm going to dive into it because there are so many things about burning and the way that the Plains people uh, dealt with the with the um, uh, the land that goes against what I I learned as I was growing up, and it's it's a huge it's a huge topic, and it's uh, you know I'll give you an example about this this burning. There's a guy named. Um, uh, Henry, T, Dr. Henry T. Lewis. Uh, so he re wrote a paper. And if you're interested in burning, I would look up, uh, it's his PhD thesis. And it's absolutely uh, fascinating on what the, the um, well, it wasn't even the Plains people. Like the native say, people say his name again. Because I, I mean, I'm not just fascinated with burning. Um, I've been described in the past as a pyromaniac which okay whatever i don't smoke cigarettes then but I you're gonna I love this right I mean, you're gonna love this i carry a bic lighter because you never know when there might when there <laughs> might come across the cedar tree that i need to put fire on okay so what was that gentleman's name again henry t lewis all right i will check him out maybe even put a yeah, link in the it, show it, notes it, if you have a, a trouble, I, like I have, um, I can't send you what I have because I have the paper on my on my computer. Um, you actually have to go to the uh, U of A website to get it, but uh, I can send you the link. <laughs> Anyways, um, so his PhD uh, was in uh, anthropology. And so he interviewed, so this would have been in the late 70s, early 80s when he was doing his research. No, mid-70s, because he published it in 1980. That's right. So um, the amount of burning and the way that they burnt, uh, the indigenous people never burnt in the summer, ever. Okay. They burnt pretty much every spring and occasionally in the fall if the conditions were right. And then what happened was, um, uh, you know, like in Alberta, you know, people are talking about all the, uh, you know, how many trees are put down. We have more trees than we ever have. 
like just right where um, my place was uh, at Athabasca. Uh, you know, I had elderly friends uh, that I would visit with. And I remember one guy, Gord Sawchuk, he would tell me about when he was like, I think he was about six years old, just north of us for 12 miles. There were no trees all the way to the river. So Gorge, um, yeah, so he just died. So he would have been, I think he died when he was 87. So anyways, so that would have been uh, in the 40s. Okay. So he's six years old in the 40s. And, and a lot of the, uh, uh, the immigrants, they had, you know, maybe 12, 15 cows. And that's what his family had. So he was sent out every two or three days on the horse to go and gather their cows up just so they stayed together. It was all grassland, man. And right now, it's all bush. I have another friend uh, uh, named Martin. Well, again, he died too. But um, So this, he had a picture from 1952 and he showed me his first house. And I said, Dave, where the, where the heck? Because I, I knew where the, the, his house site was. Uh, but, and it was in a clump of trees. And I said, Dave, th where's this picture from? And he said, well, right there. And he said, I know, but it can't be. There's no trees. Oh, yeah, Tommy, back then there were no trees. And just in this period of 50 years, you know, and then you go further back, uh, you know, into the 1800s. Uh, it's just fascinating to me how fire was used as such a tool. And we have lost that, uh, that skill. Uh, and yeah, and it's too bad. Uh, and I think maybe we use it in the wrong way. We use it to get rid of things rather than to bring things alive. That's a, that's a good observation. I mean, fire has had a place on the great plains since the last ice age. And, you know, it, just listening to you talk. I would agree that that the native peoples on the plains primarily did their fire in the spring, which is where we learned which is where we learned it from. Also, sometimes in the fall, but I think there were also some big fires in the growing season that were started by lightning. Now, I'm not as old. I'm, I'm not as um, I'm not as wise as you are, sir. I don't have quite oh, as many God. white or gray. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have quite as many white or gray hairs, but I've watched a lot of wildfires. I've watched how they respond at, and how they start. And other than the human, I say the ones that are human caused, and that's either somebody throwing a cigarette butt out, a hot bearing along a road, or power lines slapping together to make a spark. Those are kind of all man caused. Those happen, I mean, those can happen pretty much year round. The only fires I've seen lightning start, July and August. I take that back. I've seen them start several fires. The majority of those are going to be in July and August. So I've started to look at growing season burns as a thing because the guys over in the Flint Hills of Kansas are starting to figure this out. If you burn in the middle of April every year, it starts to shift your, it starts to shift your plant community. It starts to shift your grass community towards more of a cool season dominated. And it also encourages some herbaceous brush to come in, namely Cerecia lespedesia 
is stimulated by spring burning. Research out of Kansas State University is showing that if you burn in the fall, like September, you can, or late growing season, late summer, early fall, you can really put a hurting on that Cereceal espedesia. So just, just anecdotally, I grew up burning here in the Red Hills and our burning season would generally start in March and run through middle of April, sometimes beginning of May, depending on when things greened up and got, you know, got too wet and too tough to burn. And I don't want to shift my whole ranch towards, towards a less natural environment. And I guess what I'm saying is we're playing around in this area more with summer burning, like growing season burning. And it's, it's different, but rebuilding fire culture in an area is a, is, is a huge challenge if it's not there. Um, so I, I guess I'm kind of rambling again. I'll let you, let you talk some more. Well, I've listened to your podcast for the last three weeks and I noticed that you ramble a lot, but that's all right, Brian. It's your, it's your show. <laughs> I mean, I, so, I, you know what? Okay. Let's, let's stop to talk about the burning because it's a huge thing, but you read that paper. Uh, and I think you're going to, I, I just fascinating. And you know what? Surprisingly, I went and listened to it in 1984. I started, it was my first year of university. And I just happened to be walking down a hall and I saw this uh, flyer for a talk giving on, on indigenous burning. I thought, oh, what the hell? And I just went and I listened to him in 1984. And then, um, you know, and then now I'm uh, really engaged in his, in uh, the research that he did. One last thing about burning is I think the farther, the farther south you go, through the Great Plains, the more frequent burns happened in antiquity. And so like down around, uh, you get down into the South Texas Plains, two to three years. And then as you go north through the plains, maybe that looked more like seven to 10 or seven to 15. Does that, does that kind of maybe scan with some of your experience? Or do you no. think it, or do you think it needs to burn more often than that up north? Oh, I'm not going to, I'm, I don't have experience. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm reading these old journals okay. from the, from the 1700s. Okay. And that's what I'm basing my stuff on. I have no experience. Yes, I have burnt, uh, but scares the shit out of me. And so I don't like to do it, but, uh, and I actually have not done it for, uh, for agricultural purposes. If I need to do something, I use, uh, animal impact to do it. I do not use burning because I'm scared. I'm scared shitless of burning. So what you just asked me, I'm just, it's my observations from reading these old journals and how the landscape was so different. You know, we have these huge, you know, in the last uh, few years, we've had these huge wildfires uh, in Alberta and BC. Um, well, definitely in Alberta, like Fort McMurray. Okay. Right. Courtney Murray got hammered. Yeah, that's right. They were almost shut down for what, two weeks because of wildfires all around. They evacuated the whole city. Yeah. And like, like, so I read, a I read, uh, uh, a book from the, uh, it was describing the, uh, first 30 years of the Northwest mounted police. And 
in there, there was a report from a constable. This is 1904. He was taking a prisoner from Fort Chipwine in the middle of winter with dog sled from Fort Chipwine all the way to Fort Saskatchewan. So I don't know how far that is. That would probably be, I don't know, 500 kilometers. I don't know what that, five, maybe 600 kilometers. Anyways. It, it's, it's haul on a dog sled. Uh, yeah, you bet. And so this is 1904. There were no trees from Fort Chipwine until he got to the Athabasca River at, at uh, Fort Mackay. And then there's trees along the river and he goes through uh, um, Fort McMurray and then gets south of Fort McMurray and there were no trees all the way to uh, Fort Saskatchewan. Today, if you drive that, it's hard to imagine because it's all trees. It's all trees. You can drive, from, well, definitely from Lac uh all the way to uh, uh, Fort Chipwine and it's all trees. So we have these huge uh, wildfires. Oh my gosh, this is getting crazy here, what, I, what we're talking about. But you have these huge wildfires, you know, it's blamed on, on um, uh, climate, climate change. change. Yeah. And I'm not, a, I'm not a denier, okay? I'm not a denier. I just, everything gets blamed on it. And, well, let's look a little deeper. At one time, there were no trees there. You know, it was, it was burnt regularly. Um, another little funny story is, so in the 1920s, uh, the federal government, Canadian government, formed the Wood Buffalo National Park. And they stocked it with bison. Well, the, the native people up there were thrilled because now they're bison. Oh, shit. They can't go into the uh, national park to kill them. So guess what they did? In the spring, they just burnt on the outside of the park. And Sucked guess what all the happened? buffalo out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, it was just like, when I read that, I just, that is so cool. Because it just is so in line with what I was reading with the journals from the 1700s. The people burnt early spring when the, the ground was still frozen, uh, you know, semi-frozen. And they burnt. And they got that grass growing. They woke up the grass and lo and behold, here come the bison and we can have our spring bison. You know what got me started thinking about burning in this whole conversation? No. (laughs) When you mentioned your friend with three inches of thatch, three inches of litter cover on his grass. I get that. And I can, there are times when I see that and what I see happening when we have that really thick thatch layer is, yeah, it's great for moisture infiltration. It's great to keep soil temperatures down, but it keeps soil temperatures down. And every once in a while, we need to get those soil temperatures up, maybe expose some of those seeds that are buried in the top layer to a heat event like fire to get them to germinate and sprout. So when I see, when I, when I go to a pasture and I see three inches of thatch that's already been grazed, well, you know, we know what, either eat it, pee on it, poop on it, or lay on it, right? Well, if they haven't done any of that and they've already been through and they've stomped on three inches of thatch, it's already biologically static. It's not cycling anymore. And to me, that's an opportunity to come in, put fire on the ground, just to recycle that old matter and re-jumpstart the grass growing. 
So that's how I got started thinking about fires, talking about that excess thatch buildup. Well, I think we may be talking about thatch in a different way. Uh, we may have, because to me, thatch is something that is already down on the ground. It is. Uh, thatch or litter, it's ground cover that the cattle aren't going to eat. Yeah, you bet. And it's, it's gone on a little bit more than just, yeah. Anyways, um, yeah, it's a protection. And I, I don't know, you know what? I don't know enough about burning. Uh, and again, I'm scared of it. Uh, and I prefer to use animal impact to, to get the results that I'm looking for. Yeah, for sure. And, it, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. And maybe, you know, maybe we do maybe there is a way to manage that thatch layer better with a biological tool. I, and maybe it's multi-species, maybe it's higher stock densities. But, oh, I mean, here, can I jump in? Can I jump in here? I know uh, I'm going to leave this because I'm getting yeah. tired of talking about fire, but uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'll talk about fire all day. But it's just yeah, good. I noticed. I noticed. <laughs> um, you know, both this multi-species. So here's something that um, that when I talk about multi-species, I talk about in the same model. Did you yeah. notice that picture? That picture the, on the cover of my book? I sent that link to you. It has the, uh, well, in that, that I picture, just got all the PDF text. I didn't, you didn't, send, I didn't, oh, didn't you see did? the cover. Yeah, you just, I just got the PDF text. Oh, that's right. PDF version that you don't get the cover. Okay. Sorry, man. Anyways, that picture there, um, there's in that it's a mob and there's, um, about 200, uh, cat head of cattle, um, various, various, um, stages of growth. There's finishers in there. There's cows, there's bulls. And so about 200 of those, there was uh, about 500 sheep between the ewes and the lambs. There was, uh, about 20 head of horses. And then there was about 60 or 70 hogs in that. Now, that to me is a multi-species grazing. It is not uh, a leader follower. It is not having, uh, you know, some sheep over here, some cattle over here, and having a monoculture of species on the same, on the same uh, acreage. And... I look at it the same as having diversity in, um, you know, a polyculture, you know, or, or a cover crop. And it doesn't work just because you follow one, one crop with the other, you don't get the same benefits as you do in the same way as, um, uh, uh if you follow, um, cattle with sheep, you don't get the same benefit as when you put them all together. I, I, I would, I would agree. I would agree. I'm, I, I've never done multi-species grazing. Um, and I think the comment that I want to make is like, I've had conversations with other people and it kind of calls back to a comment we made earlier about cow spit grows grass. I think there's something that we're missing 
in our pastures and on our grazing lands about having multi-species out there and the complex interaction of the different microbiomes between cattle, sheep, pigs, goats, and horses. They all have a different microbiome. There's going to be different stuff in their spit, right? And I think we're missing something in our I think we're missing something about the complex interaction of those microbiomes on the rangeland. You know what? I don't know, but I would certainly agree. Um, you know, the, it's a system. And if one system, it's just like how, uh, you know, this ranching like a 12-year-old, there's all these systems uh, and if they don't work. You know, if one piece doesn't work, the system doesn't work. If you don't have cattle, uh, that respect your one strand electric fence or you, you know animals that don't respect the system doesn't work because you need that to have control of your grazing you need that you know you were talking about um, these things that we don't quite understand about uh, you know what the how the different animals affect affect the rangeland so um, I had an opportunity with, it was actually that mob, that the picture that's on the, on the cover of my book. So there's this, uh, paddock. Um, I went and checked the paddock, uh, and geez, it was, you know what? It was Kentucky bluegrass. It was best. It, it had been overgrazed for, I don't, I don't know how many years it was under irrigation for 15 years. It was under great irrigation, but it was only grazed by sheep. Okay. Okay. So you. You know what most sheep pasture looks like. Okay. It's like a pool table. Yeah, not much different than a horse pasture. And so anyways, and I just like, shit, it's not, there's hardly anything there. And I had the mob right by beside uh, that paddock. So I went and um, I went and checked my, my uh, grazing chart and I realized we're at, uh, I think we were at 42 days of recovery. And I realized, Nothing else is going to grow. Like it, it's not, there's no more volume there that's going to grow. It's going into, into stage three and it's done. So I just moved them off there. And I think it was maybe one day, maybe three quarters of a day. I don't remember exactly. Uh, I just moved that mob in there and then away we went. And it was about maybe six or seven days later, I was riding around on my horse and I just like, geez, there was this amazing green and what the heck is going on so i ride right over there and brian i'm not even lying <laughs> there's uh 12 to 18 inches of grass growth there and it was well i don't even know how many varieties of grass were there it was phenomenal i've always been able to grow great grass but i had never seen anything like this and Honestly, it was just, it was unbelievable that that could happen in a matter of seven or eight days. And what I attribute that to, maybe it has to do with saliva. I don't know. I attributed that to the, the who's and how each animal massages its soil differently. So again, I'm not a soil biologist, so I don't know. I just know my observation. It was just like, holy shit, I need to do more of this. That's how amazing it was, Brian. It was just, it was breathtaking. You know, if, if you're into grass, it was breathtaking. So. Well, I'm kind of into grass. So. Yeah, cool. All right. Um, we got to get out of here. What do you want to end it with? 
Um, you know what? I, um, I'll just a quick plug of my book. It's, it's, I have it in four sections, grass management. You know, I talk about grazing in the sweet spot and stockpiling. And that's another thing that stockpiling, if we're going to stockpile, let's stockpile some good grass, not crap. Yeah. And that's what happens is, uh, our animals end up eating crap and we call that stockpile, but crap. That's all it is in my opinion. So there's my little, uh, uh, rant about that. And then, uh, you know, I have infrastructure, uh, the water and the, and the fencing and then the animal handling. Um, you know, I talked about the, about the, um, uh, using the whistle. Okay. So I have that video, but another thing that, um, I have a video, I call it the wave and it's a technique that I use for removing, uh, newborns. Okay. And in that video, I move uh, 325 pair uh, young calves by myself. Uh, and I end up not doing it the way that I'd like to, but I have to come out from one paddock out onto a road, down a road, and then into another paddock. I do that all by myself. Um, and the reason I did that video is because I find a lot of people base their their grazing decisions on we can't move you can't move little animals newborns and actually to tell you the truth the reason that i finally i you know i had wanted to do that video uh i had the i had the video but i just never put it together to put it on youtube was i was listening to uh somebody's um presentation and they they said that exact thing to a room full of you know 500 people that you can't move those little animals and pissed me off enough that I went right from there and I, I did the video. And so anyways, that's on my YouTube channel. It's called the wave and we need to do that. If we're going to manage, you know, move our cat in sync with nature and get control of our grass and improve our grass, we have to have the handling skills to, to do that sort of thing. The, the whole, I can't, move because baby calves thing blows my mind <laughs> me too it's half the mom's job to get that thing up get it dried off and get it standing up in 15 minutes because if not it's probably going to be coyote bait in my country and it what's the difference between getting up and moving pastures or being able to get up and run from a coyote should be the same thing i mean i'm I, I am not afraid to move newborn baby calves. Like I am not afraid to move every day or every other day during calving season. I mean, it, unless she's having it while I'm there, you bet. she's going to, she's going to move it. I might not pressure her. I might sit there with her while she has her calf, while she gets him cleaned up for 15, 20, 30 minutes, but she's, a, she's going to get him up and she's going to take him to the gate every time. Cows that don't, I already, I sold them years ago. So it's the same thing with sheep, Ryan. Same, my experience with sheep. Once they, uh, the ewes know this is what we're doing. It's exactly the same thing. Yes. They may, uh, you know, you, they may have to hold back for a little bit because they just dropped it, a lamb. But I have to tell you, Brian, it took me two years 
of moving herds four to five times a week, different herds, before I got it figured out to where I could make that video. And um, okay, this is exactly what I do. And this is how it works. So it's not an easy thing. And I understand that. But it's something I think us as whoever is a grazier, we need to learn how to do it. And we need to spend the time. It's just like, you know, so it takes time. So figure out how to do it. It's just like grazing in the sweet spot. That is something that takes two to three years to learn. That is after you already have skills of uh, grazing skills. Good stuff. And I, I think we, we want a quick fix and um, we... We want that magic bullet that's going to solve all our problems and give us more time and more money. Yeah. And grazing in the sweet spot. Um, so first of all, you have to learn your skills because we have to get over this idea of being scared to go out before the grass is ready. And we have to get, you know, we have to get out early. And so that's scary. And so we have to learn our skills. And then we also have to wake up to biology. And it takes, in my experience, it takes two to three years and there's no way around. Um, I do have a, like, there's a few people that have emailed me and uh, there's actually one guy, uh, Jonathan, I forget what the hell his name is. He's in Virginia. He direct markets and he reached out to me seven years of experience grazing and he plateaued and he's not happy with where he plateaued. And I was just thinking, I'd like to cover some or follow, not cover, follow somebody like that and see if they can replicate what I've been able to do. And so I actually flew out there and uh, I, I spent a day with him in his pastures. He has a fan, I think it's called Living Farms Ranch or something like that. They have a, a farm store and it's just phenomenal. Like what I saw was just on their direct marketing is phenomenal. And so anyways, they were in a drought this year, quite a serious drought apparently. And, um, but I was talking to him in the fall and he said, you know, I didn't really see much difference with the grass, but I tell you what I did see. The heaviest, heaviest carcass weights we've ever slaughtered in their beef. And that's one thing, um, you know, when people are asking me about this sweet spot, I said, well, you know, it takes two to three years. But one thing that I do know, your animal performance that first year will greatly increase. You're thinking. Anyways, that's been my experience, Brian. And, um, you know, I, I sure noticed it with sheep. Uh, you know, I've ran Todd and sheep. I never ran um, uh, woolies, but I've ran Todd and sheep, and it's amazing what the lambs uh, do on when they are on grazing in that in that uh, in a sweet spot where the nutritional value is so high, and you don't have to deal with parasites. Isn't that cool? Once you get your soils healthy and your grass is healthy, yeah, sheep parasites. Well, it's like cattle parasites, cattle disease. Just rotate the damn things, and those pressures drop dramatically. It's a system, and you have to you have to respect the system and and allow the system to function. Allow the system to function. I know we got to go right. So, um, hey, one thing I want to say: you have a freaking amazing voice for radio. Like I just love listening to you on the radio. (laughs) Well, thanks. 
I know a lot of people probably say you have a face for radio too, but uh, I, I would never say that. I hear that every time I go in public, sir. But because you know what, for your age, I think you look fantastic. Well, I, I think you look fantastic for your, your age too, sir. <laughs> go beans, man. Hey, I enjoyed this. I know I rambled quite a bit, but um, I think you started the rambling, so I blame it on you. I probably started like 139 <laughs> episodes ago or something. Uh, if they're still here, they're still here and they're here for it. So I'll just keep cool. doing what I do. Hey, I want to tell you a little something. I'm taking that course from, uh, what the heck was that gal's name from BC? Um, she direct Mark, Amy Hayes. Amy Hayes? The yeah, Cell Amy. Beef Direct? Yeah, I'm going to start taking her course. I want to uh, learn how to, um, uh, you know what? I'm trying to promote my book. I, I may not uh, write another book and I just want to uh, get on to uh, figure out the social media thing. So I'm going to actually uh, start taking her um, her six-week uh, module course. So pretty excited cool. about that. I, I, Amy's just such a cool chick. Great story, hey? Oh, man. I, I could have talked to her for another couple hours. I might I just might have to do that some other time. Yeah. And the other thing, I can't wait to uh, bump into Hobbs sometime. And be able to sit down over coffee for a couple hours because uh, I think he he and I have a lot to talk about. It'll be pretty cool. I I would like to be a fly on the wall for that one and maybe have a recorder for it. That would be interesting. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll see. All right, That's a lot of stuff is private. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding, man. Hey, it's been great, and I I really appreciate you bringing me on. Hey, appreciate you. I uh, appreciate your time today, Tom. And thanks for joining us. And I guess, gang, um, go do something of the week. See ya.